Hello, and welcome to Public Key, a new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews, and I'm CMO at Chainalysis. Backed by popular demand, Kim Grauer, Director of Research, and Salman Banai, Co-Head of Policy, join us to discuss Ukrainian crypto fundraising efforts, if Russia is using crypto to evade sanctions, and counterfeit crypto punks. This one is a must-listen. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the cyber criminals operating in Russia, the regime itself, the invasion uh, of Ukraine and, and crypto. You know, the other side of this was, I think, some sort of the silver lining of the cloud of this war is the global effort to contribute to Ukraine's defense. And a big part of the, uh, the fundraising happening has been through cryptocurrency. You know, Kim, what have we seen from a data perspective on uh, donations heading to the, the Ukraine government since the invasion begun? Well, we've seen uh, 60,000, over 60,000 donations, over $50 million in um, efforts across multiple different cryptocurrency addresses raised just in a sh very short period of time. So very powerful fundraising engine that we're witnessing here. That's pretty incredible. And I think one of the critiques of cryptocurrency that I often hear is, well, it's all speculation. Uh, you know, nobody actually is using this for actual goods and services, products, or economic activity. I have to imagine at this moment in particular, uh, no one in Ukraine is, is focused on financial speculation and crypto. What, what are they doing with all these funds that have been raised? Well, I think that in the con this is all happening in the context of something that we identified actually a long time ago at Chainalysis. So two years ago, we created a geography of cryptocurrency index where we actually saw Ukraine was number one on our index. And so this is our attempt to rank countries' adoption of cryptocurrency. So you might be able to compare economies of different sizes directly to each other with this index. And so we saw that Ukraine has a really, really strong cryptocurrency ecosystem already. And even at two years ago, what we heard, we heard a lot of people using cryptocurrency for commerce, for cross-country, for cross-border payments with an extremely international population. People need to send payments to uh, maybe relatives or family across borders. And that was already happening a lot in Ukraine. And so... I imagine that one of the thing, one of the reasons underpinning such a tremendously large amount of fundraising here is this rather robust cryptocurrency ecosystem that's already been existing in Ukraine already. In terms of what people are spending the money on, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I imagine that there's, there's going to be hopefully a coordinated effort there, but um, it, it is one of the fastest ways to get money directly into the hands of people who who might need it, especially in a conflict zone. And we've actually also seen this happening in other regions as well. So we've talked about cryptocurrency usage in Afghanistan and um, uh, some cryptocurrency um, pockets kind of popping up. I mean, we know that in Afghanistan, Western Union shut down in response to um, the Taliban taking over. And that leaves a lot of people who are dependent on remittances kind of you know, out of luck in that context. And so there have been concerted efforts to allow for people to move over to cryptocurrencies. Now, how 
successful has that been? How broad, how broad is that is kind of an, an unfolding question, but it's definitely been a part of the conversation. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, we've actually seen in this, in this situation, uh, some of the, the more traditional, uh, crowdfunding platforms have disabled donations going into the country for fear of funds going to defense military resources, which, you know, is a terms of service violation on a number of these platforms. Salman, I'm, I'm curious from a policy perspective, you know, how is the, the global financial, uh, kind of regulatory community thinking about this crowdsourced defense fund that that's come together? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it, is it, uh, uncertain at this point in any, any sense? I think it's served as a, as a, as a real a use case for the benefits of cryptocurrency. When traditional financial markets are potentially under attack or at risk, there is this parallel payments network that's available that can be used to get money where it's needed. And so I think, I think it's, it's been, it served as a great you know, illustration of the value of uh, blockchain technology. Well said. I think, uh, I think I'm in agreement that, you know, emergency fund delivery to the people most well-suited to apply it to, to good purpose is a, is a positive thing. And it, it's been kind of amazing to watch the, the widespread, uh, kind of global collaboration in support of Ukraine, right? You have people all around the world who've given uh, you know, a few dollars to a donation here or there, being able to, to see it show up in the country immediately and, and be put to, to positive work is, is kind of amazing. Kim, from a, a data analysis perspective, are we seeing, you mentioned earlier that scams and fraud continue to be the leading source of criminal activity on blockchains in cryptocurrency. I have to imagine in the context of Ukraine, while there's certainly a lot of people out there looking to do positive things, those scammers and fraud, fraudsters are passing up an opportunity to uh, trick people into to sending their crypto to, to something that looks like a legitimate donation site. Are we, are we seeing any evidence of this? Is it happening at scale? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's wherever there is an opportunity to exploit, scammers are extremely um, adaptive. So they will pop up in pretty much any context. We saw during Right when the coronavirus started taking off, we saw a lot of scamming around, especially with crypto, well, everywhere, but also with cryptocurrency, people were setting up fake fundraisers, selling fraudulent healthcare products using cryptocurrencies, and taking advantage of a crisis in order to get people to either donate money to a fake charity or buy an illegal or buy a, a fraudulent item. And we've... We've seen some instances of this with Ukraine as well. Uh, one thing that we saw, we actually just looked into last week was there's actually been a lot of NFT donations to, to Ukraine and the cryptocurrency addresses that, that they control. And one NFT we saw was this very valuable CryptoPunk that was actually donated to, to this address. But then shortly after that, we saw a spoof, a fake, kind of an imposter CryptoPunk also donated to this address. And I think the idea there is that potentially, and then actually we trade, we looked more into the account of the person who made this fake NFT and they've been doing this 
for years or for a long time. They create uh, fake versions of a well-known NFT. They control one one version of it, and then they try to try to sell it. And so I think that this is an example of a scammer thinking that maybe if I donate this NFT, someone will buy it and I'll actually control it. So they'll buy it for a huge amount in order to in order to get money to Ukraine and then they can siphon the money off indirectly. So we've seen instances of this happening in this context as well. Incredible. The the creativity of the criminals never ceases to amaze. I know. And they're, they'll pop up with and, and take advantage of of any opportunity that they can. I mean, especially during the coronavirus, we saw incredibly interesting ways of people to taking advantage of other people. And I think that we're, we're seeing that trickling into Ukraine as well. And it'll probably continue, which, which, is, a, which is unfortunate. Salman, one of, one of the topics that I'm curious about, obviously we're talking about crypto funds pouring into Ukraine. We touched on sanctions earlier. We've seen kind of widespread, I think even some of the Ukrainian government ministers came out this week and sort of said, hey, we need to shut down access to all cryptocurrency for everyone in Russia, regardless of being on a designated list as an individual or associated with an entity. If you're physically in country of Russia, zero access to cryptocurrency, every exchange should ban them. How, how do you think about that from a policy standpoint? Is that an effective approach to take? Is that something that I'm sure we're going to have a lot of uh, compliance officers uh, listening to this call? Is that something where they should be thinking about anything originating out of out of that region is suddenly extremely high risk? That's that's really a decision for uh, for policymakers. You know what they want to achieve through sanctions and what message do they want to send? You know one one drawback of sanctions that apply to the, to an entire country is that it sends a signal that the entire country is the recipient of adverse um, action by the U.S. and its allies, as opposed to targeting the regime and the state and the regime, which is the current scope of the sanctions. So there's there's definitely uh, trade-offs when it comes to, you know, broad sanctions uh, requirements. Yeah, the, there's some some bad with the potential good of that, of that widespread block. Do you... Do you foresee a potential where uh, some of the international aid organizations might start distributing funds in cryptocurrency? Like, is that a way that we could get resources into the the country of Ukraine, you know, faster potentially than than moving dollars through banks? So you mean um, crypto going to aid organizations as opposed to the Ukrainian Ukrainian government, or, or even even to Ukrainian government directly, but crypto coming from uh, you know, NGOs or potentially government organizations that are, that are in a position to, to deliver, uh, support and resources to the Ukraine. Is, is anybody talking about sending in crypto that way? It seems like most of the crypto that's been raised to this point has been kind of crowdsourced from individuals. I don't know at the governmental agency level or a large NGO or any of them, uh, sending crypto donations. I haven't, I haven't seen anything on that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if Kim. Kim has observed anything, you know, in this realm, but I don't see why not. I mean, the benefit of crypto is that it's, it's, it's very portable and it doesn't rely on, you know, functioning banking infrastructure. So for high risk jurisdictions, you know, it seems like an obvious choice for aid organizations to leverage. I just don't know if it's actually happened. I don't know, Kim, if you've heard anything. Unfortunately, one of the limitations is we can't ask the intention behind many of the transfers. So 
we can see an increase in transfers going to a certain, you know, maybe a Ukrainian-based exchange or the number of visits to uh, Ukrainian-based services is on the rise. But since we can't ask the intention, I don't, I don't know for sure and also haven't seen that. Well, we are paying attention to, we are, we are monitoring a lot of different kind of data points to, to think about the situation. So we are looking at uh, the amount of ruble denominated trades happening on centralized exchanges. And that grew significantly post invasion. So it wasn't, you know, kind of this volatile activity. And then all of a sudden it continues to be all, there was a marked increase in the number of ruble denominated trades um, that, that we saw. So people are adapting their behavior in, in noticeable ways. And we could speculate as to what is driving that activity. And I have some ideas, but yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you to speculate. What, uh, what, what do you think is causing the, the spike there? Is that people anticipating the, the decline in relative value of ruble to, to say dollar and trying to shift out of that currency into something that potentially is, uh, is a little more liquid? I think we can say with relative confidence that it's not the kind of the, the oligarch shifting, oligarch shifting their behaviors, like what we would, what we're all kind of hoping to think about and capture when we look at sanction evasion. It's what, where, how are the oligarchs using cryptocurrency to move their funds around? I think that Salman talked at the top of the call a, a lot about how there are long established ways that, uh, that really the uber wealthy people in Russia are going to be moving their funds and probably they do about they do to start making changes far before this the sanctioning actually happened. So on the the exchanges where you can trade actually the the ruble, what's probably happening is this is just your day-to-day -day user who has an account on an exchange and is, you know, the ruble declined. There was a, a massive devaluation of the currency against the US dollar, for example. And People probably, in part, wanted to get their money out of the ruble, hedge against further currency devaluation. But there's also Forex traders out there who could be using cryptocurrency to hedge against ruble trades that maybe they don't even have anything to do with, with Russia. They're, they're not even in the region. So there could be a wide variety of things happening, of, but likely it's not the kind of the oligarch moving their money all of a sudden to one centralized exchange in, in one day. So the, the current working theory is average, average financially sophisticated citizen who maybe was already using crypto in some regard had, had at least the technical wherewithal to say, oh, there's a potential for devaluation of the, the, uh, fiat currency. Let's, let's, uh, either avoid that downside or potentially trade in a way that I can take advantage of the upside by shifting assets into crypto. And so you see that, that ruble to Bitcoin or ruble to stablecoin trading pair like spike and volume. Yeah, mostly stablecoins actually. And then also Bitcoin. Interesting. So the Russians don't like Ethereum is what you're telling me. First, first Tether, then Bitcoin, then Ethereum, <laughs> it seems. So Kim's team, team um, actually put together some analysis around this to support kind of some of the work I do. And one of the interesting data points that they, uh, that they, that they sent me was that inbound transfers, or I should say net, net transfers into exchanges frequented by, uh, Russian customers was about flat, you know, in the period after, you know, the, the invasion, uh, which to me implies that 
you, you would expect a large inflow if there's you know a large demand for crypto or stable coins into these exchanges uh, but we we haven't we haven't seen that yet now you know one one thing i'll i'll mention about you know sanctions uh evasion is at this point there's been a number of hypotheses uh, about the potential for crypto to be used for sanctions. We've tested a number of those hypotheses and they don't seem to be borne out, but that doesn't preclude, you know, some future, you know, event happening that, that we haven't come across yet. That's right. We're, uh, we're watching closely. I mean, yeah, you're certainly right. The, the net outflows of these Russia based exchanges have been, have been surprisingly flat, but that's in aggregate. You are able to kind of get a little bit more advanced and and look at, hey, are there deposit addresses that have all of a sudden post-invasion with a Russia kind of footprint increased in activity? And you're seeing kind of some some interesting stuff on the margins that might not reflected in the, be reflected in the absolute numbers. So even though net flows are the same, you do see some, some interesting examples on the margins of, of interesting activity in some of these, of some of these wallets that Maybe there was a spike in, in activity post-invasion. So we're also monitoring those as well. Sensing another uh, a future research report, Kim. Yeah, definitely. There's, a, there's actually a lot of data that we can look at. I mean, we've talked about a lot today, but services with a Russia or Ukrainian footprint, the do- donation addresses, flows in and out of Russia-based exchanges. Um, there's there's a lot of data to kind of start triangulating this question here that we have. Maybe we need to make a pinup calendar. Whales of Russia. <laughs> whales is another one. Exactly. We um, in the crime report we uh, looked at whales and we looked at their time. We estimated the time zone based on the transaction, time, the time of day of most of the transfers. And I was not expecting this at all, but. There were the most concentration of whales were actually in the Moscow, St. Petersburg time zone period, um, time zone, um, UTC plus two. So that was another, <laughs> another data point to look at. Amazing. Well, we're, we're going to have to have you two back on the podcast. This is going to be a weekly affair for us on the public key. So as the situation develops, as we get more data and better insight, thank you for your time today. It was a ton of fun. Really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for joining another episode of Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. If you enjoyed our discussion, please subscribe and post a review of the episode. And remember, sharing your public key is encouraged.